Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to be moving from verse 8 in chapter 5 all the way to verse 9 in chapter 6. Uh, I, I think I'm going to make it go quickly for you. We'll see how it goes. Be praying for me. It might be a selfish prayer. You might be praying for yourself, I guess. So last week, in the first seven verses of chapter 5, Solomon told us how we should guard our steps as we approach God in worship. And he said that we should approach God in obedience rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. We should come before God the way that He asks us to instead of doing life our own way and then coming before Him with the sacrifice saying, yeah, I'm sorry, but you know, make it right. Here, here's the sacrifice that you asked for. He doesn't want that sacrifice. He wants our obedience. And Solomon also said that we should limit how, we, how much time we speak to God uh, when we come into God's presence. We shouldn't be uh, impulsive with what we say to Him and we don't need to make speeches before Him. Why? Because He's in heaven and we're on earth, meaning that He is sovereign over it all. He knows everything that we are going to say. He knows everything that is happening with us. And so we don't need to make these big elaborate speeches before the Lord in order to get him to hear what we have to say. And I said last week that, you know, one of the most simple and knowledgeable prayers that we can offer up is, Lord, help me. Now, God knows exactly what you mean when you say those words. And so it's not necessary for us to give him these big, long speeches. And the last thing he said is that we should be quick to fulfill a vow to the Lord if we are to make one. And so if you're praying for something, there's something that you want desperately and you make the decision to freely offer up something if God will just answer the prayer that you're asking in the way that you want Him to. So you're making a vow. If you do this, then I will give this to you. Then we need to be quick to do that for the Lord. Uh, don't act as though, you know, once you get what you wanted from God, don't act as though you offered up your end of the bargain as a mistake. Honor what you say. Do what you say. Be quick to honor that vow. It's better not to make the vow at all than to make the vow and to not keep it. Uh, so as I mentioned, I think, I think it was last week, we're in wisdom literature here. And so we're getting ready to take a hard right turn here. This has absolutely nothing to do with worship as far as it goes with approaching God and how we are to present ourselves to the Lord. This week, Solomon's going to talk about the futility of pursuing satisfaction in wealth. And he's really going to go after it. Right? We've got almost a full chapter of what it looks like to pursue wealth in futility and he's going to give us six reasons why it's a bad idea for us to pursue after wealth for us to make that our ultimate goal our ultimate desire to be wealthy he's going to give us six reasons why living for money is a bad idea and after presenting these six reasons he's going to go in to the best way that we should handle our money the best way we should think about all that god has given us in at the end of chapter five and into chapter six and so one thing that we should consider as we read the troubles that are presented with living for satisfaction in money is that these troubles are not complete. Right? There are other things to be said about how we handle our money as well. 
I'll, I'll get a little bit into that at the end of the passage, uh, but we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, so please note that with each one of these issues that he's pointing out, I'm just giving a cursory look at each one of them. We could dive much deeper into all of them. We could spend the next two months looking at each one of these problems that wealth brings to our life if we make it ultimate in our lives. Uh, so just be mindful that this is going to be more rapid fire than deep dives into each one of these issues. So as I approach each issue, I'm only going to read the part that the issue pertains to. So I'm not going to read the entire thing. I feel like you would get uh, very sleepy uh, before we reach the end of that. And so I'm going to be hitting each part as it comes up. And so let's pray and we'll dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. Father, we are grateful that you give us uh, all good gifts. You give us wealth to both to enjoy and to take care of uh, the, the world around us. And I pray that we would be mindful uh, of how fleeting wealth can be and how it will not ultimately give us satisfaction. Pray that we would find satisfaction solely in you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So I'm going to break these down, each one. Number one. The first reason that Solomon offers on why living for money is meaningless is that with money often comes corruption, right? With money often comes corruption. We see that in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5. It says there, If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. And so here Solomon's saying that no one should be surprised when they see oppression of the poor, when they see perversion of justice because government officials take advantage of their positions of power. And as they do this, they look out for one another. So you, you mess up over here, I'll cover that up for you. If, when I mess up over here, you'll cover it up for me. So I'll overreach my boundaries, I'll overstep my authority, and you're going to back me up, and I will do the same for you. And it says there that all of these issues go all the way up to the king. The king is also profiting from all the stuff that they're doing. Why do they do this? And it could be any number of reasons that Solomon lists, but the reason that he presents to us here is that being oppressive and perverting justice is profitable. There's money to be made in oppressing the poor. There's money to be made in perverting justice, right? Now, money and power do not always go together, but they often go together, right? In the powerful position that these people hold, they are able to profit from that position, right? They don't oft always lead to corruption, but they often lead to corruption. And so there's always this temptation presented in those with money and power to wield those tools, right? There's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with money, but they are tools to help us get what we want. And there are people that will take those tools and they'll do whatever it takes to keep that wealth and that power. And so why is pursuing satisfaction in money meaningless? First off, it could make you corrupt. Right? When your value, when you see nothing beyond your wealth, you could easily fall into corruption so that you can obtain that wealth and keep that wealth. So that's number one. Number two, the second reason why pursuing satisfaction and money is meaningless is that you will never have enough. We've addressed this many times throughout 
the study of Ecclesiastes. In verse 10, Solomon says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. And so where does this lack of satisfaction come from? It comes from the fact that when we love something, we always want more of it, right? right? When you uh, experience a first love, right? You've met someone, that honeymoon stage is going on, that love is brand new, you just can't get enough time with them. Right? You can't wait to see them. You can't stand being apart. You, know, you do that nonsense on the phone where it's like, no, you hang up, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. Oh, right? It's all that lovey-dovey stuff because you just can't get over being with that person or near that person, right? If you love your car, you can't wait to go for a ride. You wash it every chance that you get. Any time you get, you know, you're taking pictures with your car in the background, taking pictures of your car, and you're posting it on social media, hashtag vroom vroom, right? Like you love that car. If you love your job, you can't wait to get to work. You might love it more than you love other things, and you might not want to go home, right? You love your job. If you love the Lord, you can't get enough of the Lord. Time in Scripture, time in prayer, time with the church, we want to be with what we have affection for. Jesus says in Matthew 6, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so every man, woman, and child will pour themselves into that which they love. So to be clear, the love of money is not just a wealthy person's problem. We often think about those who love money are people that have a lot of it. That's not necessarily true. Those with little can love money just as much as those with a lot. The problem across the board is that your affection for money will never be satisfied. You will never have enough. It will never cease to woo you away from other things that are ultimate. Those who love money always want more money. The third reason that there's no satisfaction in money is that there's always someone around you with their handout. Right, Solomon says in verse 11, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? So when you begin to increase your wealth, there is no end to the people who start coming out of the woodwork to try to get their piece of what you have. Right? The government is definitely coming for their piece of the pie. Right? You are definitely going to see their handout. And when it's known that you have money and other resources, you're going to find that you suddenly have family members that you have never heard of. Right, Friends who have never spoken to you before, and I put friends in air quotes, friends who have never, you've never spoken to before suddenly start taking an interest in your life. You're going to find that charities will start hitting you up for help. And along with those, there are going to be scammers and other thieves who begin looking for opportunities to take what you have. Right? If you let that security in your life slip just a little bit, they'll find their way in and they'll get a hand on what you have. There's never a shortage of people who are willing to help you spend your money. I always find it interesting uh, that when there's these big jackpots in the lottery and someone wins one of those, like it hits the news that someone has won the big jackpot, it never fails that someone writes an article about what you should do, if the steps you should take if you ever win the lottery. And two of the first things that it always mentions is, one, never tell anybody that you won the lottery. 
And number two is to change your phone number. Now that's non-Christian talk coming from people that just know that people are coming out of the woodworks for your stuff. Don't tell anybody and don't and change your phone number. And from that point on, you will never know who your true friends are. You will never know who will be by your side if you were to lose it all until you actually do. And then you'll see who those people really, what they really valued. Was it you or was it your stuff? You never know who you can trust because there's always someone with their hand out. The fourth reason that Solomon lists here that no, one is, that no satisfaction is found with money is that those who have a great deal of wealth do not sleep well. $10,000 bed, but can't get a good night's sleep. In verse 12 he says, The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. And so one of the things that we don't often think about when we think about wealth Right? We all have this desire for the ease that it brings to us. Right? The, the, we don't have to make choices. Do we buy this at the grocery store this, this week or this at the grocery store this week? Right? Do we get you know, gas for the car or you know, do we do something fun with it? We don't have to make those choices because we're wealthy, but there is a great deal of responsibility that comes with wealth, especially if you are in the constant pursuit of more. Right? If, if wealth is never enough, then you constantly have to be going after more and more wealth. If you've purchased a lot of stuff with your wealth, now you have to care for all those things that you have purchased, right? Multiple houses have to be kept up, right? Multiple cars have to be kept up. Maintenance is a pain when you have just one house and one car, but it's significantly harder when you have several. And let's say that maybe you pay someone to take care of those things for you. Well, now you have to worry if they're keeping up with it. Are they doing what the, the thing that you're paying them for? And so it's one worry after another. If you've got a business that you have used to build up that wealth, you have to continually pour yourself into that business. You have to constantly be thinking about how can I keep this at the very least where it is, but we want it to grow. How do I do that? And that will keep you up at nights. If you make money in the stock market, you'll constantly be worrying about what's going on in the economy constantly watching that little ticker go across to see how you're doing right and it is that money going to be there tomorrow or not you don't know as i mentioned before when a new person comes into your life as a wealthy person you may have to wonder why that person's there right can i trust this person into my life when i welcome them into my home do i need to start counting all the knickknacks around to make sure that they didn't pocket one as they left are they looking to see what vulnerabilities that I have so that they may long con me and scam, scam me later? Right? Is this a solicitation? Is this a leech? What is this relationship? What does this relationship really mean? Maybe that'll keep you up at night thinking about those things. And as a wealthy person, you have another level of worry regarding the safety of those that you love. We may not think about this often, uh, but many times those that do win the big one on the lottery, they don't want their name posted because they're afraid of what that could mean for the safety of their family. Right? You know whose children rarely get kidnapped for ransom? People making minimum wage. You know whose children might get kidnapped for ransom? Those who have a lot of money. We worry differently when we have a lot of wealth. Right? These are all kinds of things that might keep a wealthy person up at night. On the other side, you have the commoner 
who is just getting by, a person who just goes to work, they do their job, they have what they have, and they're content with what they have. And because of that, they are much more content. They don't have the worries. They don't have the weight of responsibility that wealth brings. And so when they decide it's time to go to bed, they just shut off the light and go to sleep and have restful dreams until they get up and go to work the next morning. Do they have worries? Of course they do. But they have fewer things to worry about than the wealthy. So one of the reasons why there's no satisfaction in wealth is because it will keep you up at night. The fifth and sixth reasons that it is futile to live for satisfaction and wealth are tied together in verses 13 through 17. These are that there is no security in living for wealth and eventually when you die, you don't take any of it with you. In verse 13 through 17, it says, There is a sickening tragedy that I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. So the wealthy person in this scenario hoarded all that he had, and he bet it all on a bad business venture. And when that went sideways, he didn't have anything to offer up to his family. He ended up empty-handed for the rest of his days, and he continued on that path into the next life. Solomon says that we will go out of this world with the same amount of stuff that we had when we came into it. I don't know about you, but I have yet to meet the child that comes out holding on to a credit card. Right? There's no pocketbook, there's no purse, there's no Bitcoin. Kid comes out empty-handed and we will eventually go back before the Lord in the same fashion. I mean, it's, it's cliche, but... I'm going to throw it out there anyway because I'm a dad and I like dad jokes, but people say that there's never a U-Haul following a hearse. They're not going to take, you're not going to take it with you. The realization of all of this makes his days dark. He experiences frustration. He experiences sickness. And he experiences anger. No matter how much money we have, we will never find ultimate security in it. The reason for that is there's no guarantee that the money that we have will be worth anything from day to day. We've seen just in the last few years, we've seen inflation eating away at the value of the dollar, right? A dollar doesn't buy what it used to. And so even the money that you have saved away is not worth as much as it was when you first started saving it away, right? And that might not bother the wealthy, Right? When your groceries go up $200 a month, if you've got a lot of money, that might not mean anything to you. Right? But what happens if the economy collapses altogether? What then? If that happens, all that money that you have is worthless. What happens if there is a worldwide catastrophic, catastrophic event? That Have you guys ever seen the movie Greenland? It's, it's one of those, you know, like world-ending movies where uh, a catastrophic asteroid hits the earth and it took out most of the life on the planet like governments were trying to send people to a safe bunker to to get away from it so that they would be able to rebuild after uh, everything was over 
So if that happens, let's say that this massive asteroid hits and takes out most of life on Earth, how much is your 401k worth? The answer is nothing. You will have zero dollars if a giant asteroid crashes into the Earth. And let's say even if it does keep its value, let's say that nothing catastrophic happens. Let's say that life continues to go on as it has and nothing catastrophic happens to you. What happens when you die? You're not taking it with you. You will not take your wealth with you. Now, I realize that all of these are generalities. Right? Not everyone who is wealthy falls into these traps because not everyone who is wealthy is defined by their wealth and they do not all live for their money. Right? I know a lot of generous, wealthy people. Solomon says it's okay to be wealthy. There's nothing inherently sinful about wealth. Right? God has blessed the wealthy with good gifts. And Solomon says that one way to be satisfied in your wealth is to enjoy it. Right? That's part of God's blessing to you. Look at what he says in verses 18 to 20. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has given us. This is one of the reasons that he gives things to us because he loves us and he wants the best for us. But even that mindset can be taken too far when all we think about is ourselves, when all we think about is enjoying the gifts that God has given us, then we're on the verge of living for our wealth. And that's when we run into all kinds of problems. What Solomon says here is not all that God has to say about money. Right? It's all over through the Scriptures. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. In James 2, verses 14 to 17, James says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And so, while we are enjoying all the things that God has given us, we also need to think about the needs of other people that God has placed around us. We should give to others out of our abundance in the same way that we would hope someone would give to us if we were in a position of need. God does not, we tell our kids all the time, why does God give us things? Then the response is so that we can share them. God gives us all of these blessings so that we can be open handed with it and distribute that to people as they have need. That's what the early church did. 
In the book of Acts chapter 2, as people were coming into the church and coming to faith in Christ, if there was a need, the church would sell off their land, their extra land. Now, they weren't selling off their, the houses that they lived in, right? Because what, what good is it to sell everything that you own and give it all away and then wind up being in need yourself? You've just transferred the need. But out of their abundance, they were selling what they had and they were making sure that no one in the church had any needs. That's how we are to live with our money. We enjoy it because it is a good and gracious gift from the Lord. And we are also open-handed with it. As we see need, we make sure that those needs are met before we have abundance. And I, I will never forget, as Kelly and I were down, I've, I've told this story before, as Kelly and I were down in Charleston and we were struggling to make ends meet, Right, like Kelly had to put back a pack of undies for Chloe because we didn't have the money, we didn't have $10 to buy underwear for her. And as I expressed that to someone in our church who had just bought a MacBook, had just gone on two vacations, had several vehicles, had two full-time working people in their home, they said, I'll pray for you. Thanks. Maybe when you pray for me, someone else will buy my daughter a pack of underwear. Like We are given abundance so that we can be generous with what we have been given. It is to our detriment when we offer to pray, as James said, go, you know, be well fed, stay warm, but you don't help people meet the needs that they have. That is detrimental to our soul. That is taking that be grateful for the gifts that God has given you. Enjoy them too far. The next thing that Solomon says about how we should handle our money comes in chapter 6, and it involves our contentment. Now, here's the thing. I don't normally do this, but I'm not going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 this morning. All right, I will break down the big idea of what it says, but there is an analogy in there uh, that if you... Read that and take a look at our prayer request. You can see why I'm not doing that today. Okay? I don't normally do it. This is, I normally read it all. I'm not doing that today. You can read it for yourselves and you'll understand what I'm talking about. All right, if that's too cryptic, I'm trying to be sensitive to pain here. Okay? So in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, Solomon focuses on the importance of contentment. Right? It doesn't matter how much or how little we have, if our hearts are not set on the right things, then we will never be content and we will never truly experience joy. Like we'll have those fleeting moments of happiness, but as soon as the situation changes, those ha that happiness turns to sorrow. But if we cannot be content in what God has given us, we will not experience joy. In chapter 6, Solomon says that if a man is not content, it doesn't matter how much God gives him, he will never be satisfied. And it would be better for this discontent man to have never been born if that's the way that he intends to live his life because all he has to look forward to is misery. All the wealth in the world will not help your soul if you are not content with God. You see, contentment is a choice. It's a choice that we make to be grateful for what we have rather than to focus on what we do not have. Paul helps us realize this in his letter to the Philippian church. Notice what he says to them if you read chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. 
He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In all of that, it is a choice for what we look at, what we focus on. Do we focus on what we don't have, or do we focus on all the good things that God has given us, no matter how much we have? If, if all you can focus on is the negative, if all you can focus on is what has gone wrong or what you don't have, then you will never be happy with what you do have. It will never measure up. If all you think about is the future, if I can just get to this next level, if I can just get to this amount of wealth, if I can get to this amount of prestige or this amount of power, then life will be good, then I will be happy, then I can relax. You will never be content with the present. Because somewhere deep down in your soul, you know that all of those things can be taken away. So you can't relax. You can't just kick back and let go because you know that all of that stuff could go away in a moment. And the opposite is also true. If you live in the past, this will keep you from being content in the present. If the good days were all what was behind us, and we long to go back to those good days, I hate to break it to you, but those days are gone. We have to be content with, with what the future has, is bringing. We have to be content with what it looks like to live life today and to move towards the future. I'm not saying that planning for the future is wrong. I'm just saying if we completely live in the future, then today will be, all the blessings of today will be ripped away. So Solomon says it's important that you learn to enjoy what you have been given and to be grateful for every gift that God has given you. Because remember this, guys, God owes you nothing. Due to our sin and our rebellion against him, what we deserve is death and condemnation. So everything that we have that's not that is up and to the right as far as this is concerned. God has been gracious to us in many ways. Like most of us probably would not even consider ourselves wealthy, but we have more wealth than 99% of the population of the world in this country. Like there are people that are making two or three dollars a day at their jobs in some parts of the world. We are a very wealthy people, whether we choose to acknowledge that or not. The most significant gift that God has given us, though, is the atoning sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. If we have Christ's righteousness that has been offered to us freely through his life, death, and resurrection, then we have everything that we could ever need. And there is nothing in this life that could add more to that. And if we have nothing in this life, paupers who are digging through the trash to find our food, if we have 
the righteousness of Christ through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are the most wealthy people because there will be an eternity to enjoy the glory and riches of God. We may scrape by in this life, but there is promises for the next life that goes beyond anything that we could have here today. And so my question is, how are you doing with your contentment? How are you doing with your wealth? And I think that most of that is going to be based on how you are doing in your relationship with Christ. And if you see Christ for what He truly is, then we are content with whatever else He chooses to give us because He knows, we know, that He is sovereign Lord. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's going to be best for His plan, for the mo- do the most good for His people. And that may mean that we are wealthy beyond imagination and we just continue to give that mess away. Or that might mean that we scrape by and people say, why do you have so much joy in your life? You have nothing. And we can say, I have Christ. I have everything. So how are you doing with your contentment? How do you view your wealth? How you see Christ will determine how you answer both of those questions. And if you're struggling with that, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you about that, walk you through that in any way that I can. Let's pray together. Father, you give us so many good gifts. And I pray that we have the eyes to see it. That our hearts are not so wrapped up in other ways that we identify for satisfaction for hope, for joy. I hope our eyes see that there is nothing that we can put that ultimate hope in except for Jesus. And it's my desire that we would be a generous people. It's my desire that we would enjoy the gifts that you've given us. But Lord, that we would be content in all that we have. The pursuit of more is futile if we don't have you. If our focus is not you, Help us be mindful. Help us to be content people. Help us to be generous with our wealth. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.